All right, if you have a Bible, meet me in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone on our team will come around and make sure you have a copy of the Bible. You can also take that home with you uh, if you need that. That's our gift to you. Um, So just raise your hand and, and that will head your way here shortly. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. It's about a a third quarter of the way in. And we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel for a little while here moving forward. And today's the the beginning of that journey. Going to read just a little bit here to get us started. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now we're going to pause there and come back to this and get some more context for these words here in just a moment. But I want to begin here. Theologian Ivan Illich, who wrote and reflected extensively on all of the social upheaval of the 20th century, was once asked the question, what's the best way, what's the most revolutionary way to change society? Is it violent uprising or gradual reform? Is it like storm the castle and kill the king or is it this sort of series of incremental changes? Illich thought about this question for a minute and then he answered it this way. He said, neither. Neither. If you want to change society, you must tell an alternative story. If you want to change the world, you must tell a different story. Story. This idea of story, the narrative shape of our lives, has been a significant theme for us so far this year, asking these questions, what kind of story are we in? How are we telling a different story? And for us here at Discovery, one of the primary ways we discern the answers to those questions is through the lens of Scripture, this thing called the Bible. This book... For us, it's not an answer book, it's not an encyclopedia, it's not a source of some inspirational quotes. It lays out the beats, it lays out the plot points of the big story of our world, this story of salvation. And if we let it, this book has the power to shape our imaginations, not just give us some information, but shape our imaginations by inviting us to participate in the revolutionary salvation work of God, both throughout history, but also in our present moments. There are a couple ways in which we are engaging in what I would call imagination formation this year. One of those is through spiritual disciplines, what we are calling the practices. We've looked at two of them so far. This is where we were last Sunday, examining, thinking about uh, immersing ourselves in these rhythms of grace, these rhythms that take this story and make it real for us in our everyday lives. Here's one example. There's a story that says you are what you do. You are what you produce. 
And when we live by that story, we work every day, we cram our lives full of activity until we're exhausted. But there's a different story that says you are loved, that time is sacred, that not every day is like the day that came before. And so we can slow down. We can take a break. We can enjoy the world, the life that we've been given by stopping and just being. This is called the Sabbath, right? This practice of setting aside time to rest, to disconnect from our work. And when we live in that story, we begin to disengage from these other stories that say you are what you do, you are what you produce. That's what living a different story can look like. Now, the other way in which we're engaging in imagination formation is by immersing ourselves, again, in Scripture and in the stories that we find in this big story. Last year, we did this by uh, taking a 40-week journey through the story of Jesus, as told to us by this guy named Matthew. And this year, we're going to take a similar journey through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel is, is fascinating. It's full of characters. It's a very human book. It's also full of great stories. There's a lot of funny stories in the book of 1 Samuel. There's also some tragic stories. And, and these are old stories, 3,000-year-old stories that are still quite relevant to us today. But our approach to this is, is so important, right? Our imaginations become resistant to formation if we come at this merely looking for explanation or information. Both of those are helpful and important. But we're going bigger than just information. We come at these stories asking questions like, who are the characters? What is the setting? Where is there conflict in this? And what if any resolution comes in this story? We ask questions like, where do I find my story inside of this story? What are the intersecting points? Where do I get drawn into this bigger, different, revolutionary salvation story that God is telling? Now, all of that may sound well and fine to you, but it still raises the question, okay, but why 1 Samuel? There's 66 books in this thing called the Bible. Why are we spending time in this particular book? Which, by the way, is only part one of a two-part thing. 1 and 2 Samuel historically are one big book, or way back in the day, one long, long scroll. couple reasons for us to spend time here at this particular moment. First Samuel is a uh, genre of scripture called history. Now for some of us, we hear that and we have flashbacks to like a super boring U.S. history class that we had to take in high school with somebody rambling on about dates and facts and it's just like, oh, history, we don't want to, like, Why? I'm the total opposite. I'm a history nerd. I loved my U.S. history class in high school. I majored in in it in college. And so I admit I'm very biased towards this. But there's a good reason for us to spend time in this thing called history. It's not just about the history and, again, the facts and the events that happen. It's also about how the, the people of Israel thought about history. Among ancient peoples, no one was more interested in history than the Hebrews. They were the world's first historians, while some of their neighbors were absorbed in gazing at the stars, 
And others were spinning myths, and still others were trying to decipher the weather for omens. The Hebrews were simply paying attention to what happened. They observed events. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the people of Israel got off track uh, frequently, is putting it kindly. They got off track all the time, but in the midst of that, they still clung to this belief that God was personally alive and active in the world, in their community, in their individual lives, and that it was in the actual events of their day-to-day lives that God was doing his work of salvation. Eugene Peterson, who, who that quote was from just a moment ago, goes on to say, We are thoroughly trained by our schools, daily newspapers, telecasts. This is an older quote. Now you can throw in social media here as well. Thoroughly trained to read history totally in terms of politics and economics, human interest, and environmental conditions. Now there's some good things to explore within each of those categories, but look at what he says next. For the Hebrews... There simply was no secular history. Everything that happens, happened in a world saturated by God. This is their historical imagination, if you will. This is an imagination formed by the story of God. And this is what we are after, the ability to begin to see everything as spiritual, as connected to God and the bigger story that he is writing. We're not just here to learn some uh, interesting things that happened along the way, but to have our imaginations formed by this big story, by this awareness of God's presence in all the things that are happening in our day-to-day lives. Second, we're going to spend some time here because 1 Samuel is contextually fascinating. 1 Samuel comes at a point in the history of the people of Israel where, where they are emerging out of a very dark time, sort of their dark age period that came right before this. Now, to again, give us a little bit of a sense of where we're at within the larger flow here, a thousand years Before this, God came to a couple, Abraham and Sarah, and promised them descendants. I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you a family that will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. This family will be a source of blessing for all the other families of the earth. This family does indeed grow over several generations. It then ends up in Egypt. At first, this is a good thing, but then it turns into slavery and oppression. And they spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. This is a low moment in the story. And it leads to the question, did God forget about us? What happened to this plan of blessing? How are we to be a blessing when we are uh, enslaved in this place? And so God undertakes this plan to bring them out of slavery. This becomes their defining story as a people, the Exodus. And after they are freed from Egypt, they embark on this long journey back to their homeland. It takes them a while to get there. But once they get there, they, they settle in. And you would think that, okay, now they're, they're back home and, and they can kind of Uh, start doing what God had asked them to do and things will be nice and peaceful, but it's the total opposite. Things descend into chaos and this is where, as you go through the Old Testament, we find ourselves in the book of Judges. 
The days of the judges were characterized by weak leadership, radical individualism, no absolute truth, rampant idol worship, and frequent wars. Just like today. And the sort of capstone statement at the end of the book is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Now, that opening phrase, no king in Israel, is so critical to the context of First Samuel. From the book of Judges, we go to the book of Ruth, and that's where we spent some time during Advent this year, if you want to go back and, and give that a listen. One of the, the parts or elements of the story of Ruth is to tell us about the heritage of King David. King David is going to become a very prominent figure in 1 Samuel when we get to about the halfway point. And the book of Ruth tells us about some of his ancestors. And so what we get in, in 1 Samuel is, again, they're coming out of this era of judges, this era of chaos, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. It's the story of an emerging kingdom. And it's the story of the fallacy of human beings putting their ultimate hope in a king. And this is where the story becomes very contemporary for us. It is, you may have heard, it is an election year. And, and whether we like it or not, this is going to be in our face for the next several months. One of the great tragedies of Scripture, of the story of the Hebrews, is that they lost their imagination. They were called out. They, they were set apart to be different in order to be a blessing to the other families, the other nations of the, of the earth. And, and the structure and organization that God gave them was about this. It was to be unique. It was not about mimicking what other people were doing. And I don't know if you've read through much of the Old Testament, but when you read through books like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is what you are reading. You are reading about their uniqueness, their set-apartness as a people. The story of 1 Samuel, though, is about forfeiting that unique role and settling for what everyone else was doing. And I believe that we have done a very similar thing in our day and age. Everything in our current political discourse has become this zero-sum game where, where you're either on this side or that side. It's either all good or it's all bad. It's totally devoid of any imagination. And the truth is, far too many Christians are being discipled by news stations, by their Facebook feed, by the agenda of political parties, we need a different story. We need a, a bigger imagination when it comes to this conversation. And I think 1 Samuel is a good gift for us in this task. Finally, Samuel points us to Jesus. There are numerous parallels between what's going on in the book of 1 Samuel and the Jesus story. We'll explore one of those in just a moment. But for now, I just want to say this. This hope for a good king and a just kingdom is not entirely misplaced. It's a very valid desire. 
And one of the things that 1 Samuel will show us is that that desire for a good king and a just kingdom only finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who happens to be the offspring of David. The story of Samuel is a Jesus-haunted story, and my prayer for us is that it forms our collective imaginations as we are invited into this different way of life, this Jesus way of life, this resurrection way of life. Now we're going to uh, move through this book in four movements, each movement through the eyes of a particular character. And we begin this morning with this character, Hannah. So if you still have your Bible open, look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to start right in verse 1. We're introduced to a man named Elkanah. And here we get all of the the specs about him, who he was related to and where he was from. But by verse 2, the attention falls almost exclusively on Hannah. Hannah, we infer, was Elkanah's first wife, but she is barren, unable to have children. And so Elkanah takes on a second wife who is able to produce children. We learn uh, very quickly that this family is faithful to corporate worship. Every year, they would go to Shiloh. Shiloh at that time was the center of religious life. It was the center of worship. This is before all of that moved to Jerusalem. Every year they would go there, they'd make their sacrifices, they'd participate in the rituals and the festivals. And as they did this, Elkanah would take pity on his wife, Hannah. To Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Now that sounds kind of nice, but right after that we discover that, that Hannah's situation is anything but nice. Penina, the the other wife who the author refers to as the rival, bullied Hannah about her barrenness. And this went on year after year. Hannah provoked to tears. And and, and Elkanah seems well-meaning, but he also just really doesn't get it. He's kind of the dense male character in the story. He doesn't get it. The inability to bear children was a deep source of shame for women at that time in this culture. It it was a defect. You you were not fully a woman if you were unable to have children. And, and, you know, we like to think that, oh, man, that's a pretty primitive way of of looking at things. But in so many ways, we have not moved beyond that in, in our modern day and age. Infertility is still a very big wound for many of us. Amy and I experienced this for about a year, just one year, and it was rough. And for Hannah, this is going on year after year. Until finally, Hannah, bullied, depressed, shamed, overlooked, misunderstood, Hannah has enough and the text says she stands up and she just prays her guts out. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. I want us to pause here for a moment and to see Hannah in this place. Praying her guts out. Weeping bitterly. This is messy. 
This is not polished. This is honest. This is anguished. This is uh, the kind of snotty tears, right? Are we this honest when we pray? So Hannah is standing there praying her guts out, but also look at what she does. I think it's really interesting to sort of hold these two things in tension. Verse 11, she makes a vow. She makes a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, this razor thing might be weird to us. She's essentially making what was called a Nazarite vow for her son, committing him to serve the Lord uh, as, as part of the um, order of the priests. Now, sometimes we, we hide our anguish, we hide our pain, we clean it up, we polish it a little bit, kind of make it look like it's not that bad so that people won't like, get freaked out by us. We don't want to be too much for people. But then there are other times where we, we kind of just like dump it on people, right? We sort of air it out and uh, we just sort of do it in a way that puts us at the center of attention. I don't think Hannah is doing either of those things in this moment. Chance the Rapper calls his art talking to God in public. And I think this is what Hannah is doing here. Talking to God in public, wrestling with God in public. Hannah's a good gift to us. She helps shape our imagination for what it means to speak honestly, open, rawly about our grief and our anguish, but how to do it in a way that is centered in wrestling with God and not about making ourselves the center of attention. She doesn't use this moment to call out her haters. She doesn't compliment herself. You know those like kind of backhanded compliment sort of things? Like she doesn't do that. She just goes straight after God. Remember me. Do we use our pain and anguish to manipulate people? Do we use our pain and anguish to manipulate God? Or do we just honestly put it out there, unsanitized, straightforward, talking with God in public? She says, see me, remember me, don't forget me, but also I make a vow. We're, we're in this together. Now, Eli is the priest at that time, the, the high priest at that time, and he's sort of sitting there watching what's going on, and he, he sees this raw moment, and he goes, she's had too much to drink. <laughs> That's his conclusion. This just perpetuates Hannah's experience of being misunderstood, and, and we'll discover as we move forward that Eli often does not get what's going on around him. But again, I don't want us to miss this. Hannah is so expressive, so distressed. Eli thinks that she is drunk. And then she explains to him, no, I'm not drunk. And then Eli, who does many foolish and unwise things, does this thing really well. He blesses her. Go in peace, he says. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. After this, Hannah eats. 
She begins to feel better. They go home, and we are told that in time the Lord does remember her, and Hannah gives birth to a son, and she names this son Samuel. And, of course, this is who the book is named after. She names him Samuel because I asked, for the, I asked the Lord for him. And there's kind of a, a fun little Hebrew wordplay going on here. Samuel means God named or God heard. And the word asked in Hebrew sounds very similar to the name Samuel. God heard. Hannah clearly recognizes Samuel as a gift. As this is God showing up. I had this moment of wrestling with him, and this is a gift that I have received. She raises him. She weans him. Several years later, she fulfills the vow and gives Samuel over to serve the Lord at Shiloh in this place of worship. The story of 1 Samuel is a story of this kingdom, this emerging kingdom, and we will spend a lot of time looking at the two early kings, but do not miss the fact that this story, this story of this emerging kingdom, the story of what will be the golden age of the kingdom in Israel, it begins with this totally obscure, off-the-radar character. It begins with a barren woman from the hill country praying her guts out. That's where the story starts. And it's from her, it's from Hannah, that God launches the next movement in this story of salvation. Now, God is not necessarily a prominent character in the opening chapter here, but like all good Hebrew history, he's very much present. The story begins with a family who worships. It takes place primarily in Shiloh, the center of religious life. Hannah's interaction with her husband in the story takes place during this time of sacrifices. Hannah's other main interaction is with Eli, the priest. And then we see Hannah making this vow, this covenant to give her child back to God. And then there's Hannah's prayer, her wrestling with God in public. And then there's this short but profound truth that the Lord remembered her. God is all over this story. Worship of God permeates every aspect of this story. Now we're going to see, again, among other things, we are going to see how the religious life of Israel was broken and messed up in all kinds of ways. But none of that deters Hannah from pursuing God. And none of that prevents God from seeing Hannah. And I want you to hear me very clearly on this. This is what a storied imagination looks like. The ability to see and pursue God even in the midst of the total failure of the institution. Many of us here, we have experienced some of our, our, our deepest pain. We've experienced from church. And Hannah, I think, experiences pain from church. Certainly the guy who's supposed to be her pastor, Eli, thinks that she's drunk. By the way, this is one of the reasons why Discovery exists, right? To be a church for the rest of us. A place for those of us who have maybe given up on church. But who still want to wrestle with God. Who, who still want to have a conversation with God in public. 
Hannah's imagination, so formed by the story, she can't help but go right to God with her pain, with her anguish. And God does intervene for her in a very clear way, but he's also there all throughout the story, even in those moments, those years, when it seemed like maybe he wasn't there. Now, I think one misreading of this story is to think that if we just pray hard enough or loud enough or with enough tears, if we make a vow, God will answer us. God will give us what we want. But again, Hannah had been doing this for a while. We don't know all the other conversations that she had with God over the course of those years. I'm sure she wrestled with the question, has God forgotten me? But God does remember her. God does see her through the whole story. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence, we read in the Psalms. Even if it doesn't feel like it, God sees you in your pain. God is with you in your anguish. God sees us in our barrenness when we are bullied. He sees us when we feel ignored or overlooked by others. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, I want to close by spending a few moments talking about how does this story help shape our imaginations. <clears throat> Three things. Hannah's story shapes what I would call our gospel imaginations. One of the great Bible misquotes is this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard this? This is not in the Bible, FYI. In fact, the overwhelming theme of Scripture is the total opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves. This is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the good news of Jesus in short. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot help ourselves. We need a Savior. We need a helper. And the good news is God has provided that for us in the person of Jesus. Now, one of the, the fascinating things to me about this particular story is that this theme of barrenness is not exclusive to Hannah. It's actually all over Scripture. And it almost always comes at the beginning of a significant moment. When God is about to do something big in this story of salvation, it almost always is born out of a season of barrenness. Again, back to Abraham and Sarah. God comes to them in their old age and says, you're going to have kids. And they're like, we're too old to have kids. And they wait 25 years before God comes through on that promise. They do have a child. They have children at the age of 90 and 100. Naomi, from the Ruth story, finds herself empty. No husband, no sons, no hope for her future. But then God provides grandsons for her through her daughter-in-law, the Moabitess, Ruth, right? And their kinsman redeemer named Boaz. In the New Testament, Elizabeth is a barren woman who gives birth to a guy named John in her old age. John is going to be the one who will prepare the way for Jesus. And then Mary is a virgin. Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin named Mary. 
God is able to make something out of nothing. And he does it over and over again throughout the story of Scripture. Hannah's great move is not helping herself. It is recognizing her deep need for help and then going to the only true source of help. And so I think the question for us here is have you admitted, have you confessed your need for help? And maybe even more specifically, have you confessed your need for God's help, your need for a Savior? Hannah shapes our gospel imaginations. She also helps shape our worshiping imaginations. We see her take this gift from God and and turn it into her gift back to God. God's gift becomes her gift. Hannah models for us radical generosity, this open-handedness with what's with with what she received. How easy would it have been for her to say, aha, I got what I wanted. I'm finally vindicated. And then just hold on to that thing for dear life. This is what we do though, right? We, We receive gifts, we receive grace, and we begin to believe that we earned it or we deserved it and we hold on to it very tightly. In our... Uh, child-centric society, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around what Hannah does with Samuel, right? Giving him up at roughly five years of age. But we need to call it what it is. This is worship. This is radically generous worship. Hannah is the opposite of entitled. Again, if anyone could have felt entitled, it was her. Don't you see how mean everyone has been to me? Don't you see all the stuff that I've had to put up with? This rival, this husband, this whack church. I, I'm going to hold on to this one. This Samuel, he's mine. For some of us, we will only give when it's on our terms. We'll only serve if it sort of makes sense for us, if we know we're going to get something in return. But we have received really good gifts. And the truth is, it's not ours to hold on to. And so we give it back to God. This is worship. And so the question here is, is there something that you've been holding on to, controlling it, finding your identity in it, and you need to let it go? Finally, Hannah shapes our praying imaginations, and we've explored this quite a bit already this morning, so I'll just close with a question and an invitation. What do you need to bring to God this morning in prayer? What pain or anguish, what joy or gift do you need to bring? What do you need to have a conversation with God about? Our, uh, our prayer team is always available during our Uh, closing time of worship, but there'll be a few other people um, here on either side of the theater if you would like to pray with someone uh, during our response time here in just a second. What do you need to bring to God this morning in prayer? Let's pray and then we'll get ready for communion. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we confess that in so many ways we forfeit our holy imagination, our baptized imagination, we settle for far less than the abundant life that you offer us. 
Father, far too many of us, we've been trying to help ourselves. We've been trying to figure it out on our own. And so we begin this moment by saying that we give up on that. We need you to help us. We need you to save us. We need you to see us and to remember us. And the good news, God, is that you have seen us, you have remembered us, and we know this because of what Jesus has done for us. So, Father, as we move into this time of of celebration, of communion, of remembering the good news that you have intervened on our behalf to save us, as we get ready for this moment, there may be things that we need to let go of, things that we need to... Um, leave behind. There may just be some things we need to talk to you about. And so we bring all of that this morning, trusting that you are more than enough, big enough to handle all of that. We are grateful, God, for the good news of this story. Help us to be like Hannah. honest, raw, but also totally reliant on you. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.